All right, my friends, you can come back toward your seats. We'll begin our time in Romans 1. Yeah, today we continue in our Advent series, and the passage today is, uh, is unique in that it doesn't really seem like much of a, an Advent passage. It seems like an introduction to one of Paul's letters, uh, but we kind of decided uh, to lean into the epistles uh, in the Advent readings this year, so here we go. This is Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, would you guide these moments? Would you speak to us in these seasons of life where it feels like you're distant? Would you draw near to us specifically in this season of Advent? And remind us of your closeness. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Romans, Paul is writing a letter to this group of house churches in the city of Rome. And he's having to kind of introduce himself because though he knows a few of the people who are in those Roman churches, the most of them he does not know. They know of Paul. They have not actually met Paul yet, though. And so this is kind of Paul's introduction, not just to the letter, but introducing himself to these people. And so you would think If this is an introduction, Paul would want to present himself in the most flattering light, right? In the most positive way, lead with the the good vibes in some sense. Portray himself in such a way that is the most rhetorically effective. And instead, Paul begins by saying, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, our translation says servant, but that's like the churched up, kind of like sanitized version of this Greek word doulos. Slave is the plain sense of the word, and that's what Paul is calling himself. He introduces himself as a slave of Christ Jesus. And you can imagine when he does this, just like that, like all of ancient Twitter would have gone haywire because Paul isn't actually a slave. He doesn't get to call himself a slave. Why Why would he lead with that in the first place? Doesn't he know how to do this? This doesn't make any sense to make yourself so low, to humble oneself in this kind of way. Why would you do this, Paul? Why do you lead that way? Why would you call yourself slave? Because here's what we know about ancient Rome. The empire of Rome is built on a number of different things, but mostly the violence of its military and slavery. Without those two things, the empire cannot endure. It holds on for so long because of those two things. 
And Paul isn't just, isn't just calling himself a servant. He's calling himself one of these people, a slave. As big as, as the, the Roman Empire was, it's expansive. The world had never seen anything like this empire. But as big as it was, there weren't very many people in the Roman Empire who were wealthy. We think we understand the idea of, of wealth being concentrated among just a few in our society. But Rome was much, much worse. Very few people were wealthy, right? Most of the people in the Roman Empire were among the lower classes. They were poor and many of the people in this empire were slaves, right? So you can see it now, right? All of ancient Twitter is going off, calling Paul to rescind these words. You can't say that. You don't know how these people have been traumatized by slavery. You don't understand what they've been through, and yet you are calling yourself slave. How could you call yourself a slave? Why wouldn't you lead with something else, right? Paul, if you read the book of Romans, he's going to have a lot to say about freedom, the freedom we have as believers. Why would you not lead with that? That sounds good. He doesn't. So in my house this year, something momentous happened. After years and years of conversation about getting a dog, we finally got one. Now, here's the way the conversation has always gone. The kids, April, one or the other, they will approach me and say, Dad, when can we get a dog? Hey, don't you think it's time to get a dog, she would say. And every time the conversation ends with me saying, dogs are difficult, dogs are expensive. Probably not time for us to get a dog yet, right? Okay? But this year, April leads differently. She comes to me and she says, hey, you know, my friend Jennifer wants to give us a dog for free. And I say, wait a minute. Now free, that's a pretty good deal, right? She leads with free. Why does Paul not lead with free? It's free, guys. I used to be a slave, but now I am free in Christ. You too can be free. No, that's not what Paul says. He says to people who are poor, to people who are slaves, a large number of these people in the church would have been in this predicament. And he says to them, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. Sure, he's identifying with them. And at the same time, it's like he's saying, I don't really have an answer for that. If you come to Jesus, you might still be a slave, right? There are all these words that Paul is using that are loaded terms in ancient Rome. They're problematic, right? But especially in the capital city of Rome, right? Paul's not just saying he's any old slave. He's saying he's a slave of Christ Jesus, right? And remember, that's not Jesus' name. Christ is not Jesus' name. We tend to think of it that way. Christ is Jesus' title. It's not his name, it is his title. Christ means a very particular thing. It is the Greek translation of a Hebrew word we all know much better and understand much better, Messiah. So when the Greeks were translating this Hebrew term, Messiah, they used the word Christos. Paul is saying he's a slave of Christ Jesus. Now here's what we know about Messiah. He is the long-awaited, anointed one that the people of Israel have been looking toward for centuries, right? They're holding on to this hope that he is the one who will change everything, bring Israel back to its former glory and the world for that matter. God, through the Messiah, will bring the world to what he always intended for it to be. 
Beyond that, we know that the Messiah is supposed to be a descendant of King David. He's a son of David, and that means the Messiah is a king. Paul is saying, I am a slave of the Messiah Jesus, of King Jesus. Think about that. Paul is saying, I am a slave to King Jesus. In the capital city of Rome, he's saying, I'm a slave to someone else, right? And Paul knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows what Rome is like. He knows the demographic of this city, of these churches. He knows exactly what he's saying, and he knows how problematic it would have been. Rome is kind of like Washington, D.C. in our minds. If you, if you go to D.C., if you were to walk in a church in D.C., you would expect that there would be a heavy concentration of people there who work as government employees in some capacity. Maybe that means they lead tours at these famous sites. Maybe that means they work in the office of someone who's in Congress. Maybe that means they work for somebody who's in the Supreme Court. Maybe that means they're in some sort of bureaucratic agency. Maybe they even work connected somehow to the White House. You expect you will meet these kinds of people in those kinds of positions. And the same thing is true in Rome. When you show up in the city of Rome, you can expect in those churches, you're going to have people who work in the inside of this empire. They know the inner workings of it. And it's not just these higher-ups, even slaves, would have been in this kind of position. There would have been people who worked, not just as slaves, though, as slaves in Caesar's household. There's all kinds of conversation about that among academics. How many people in the early church in Rome actually served as slaves of Caesar himself and his own household were that closely connected, right? The reality is there were slaves in this church to Caesar himself. And it's like Paul is saying, you are slaves to that king. I am a slave to another king. There's another king than the one on the throne in Rome, Paul is saying. And that's just the first sentence. In the first sentence of the book of Romans, Paul has just upended the most powerful ruler in the ancient world in this very subtle, subversive, sneaky little way. I am a slave of Christ Jesus. And it only gets better, right? He says all of this is good news. Excuse me? The man who just called himself a slave says all of this is good news. He was set apart for the gospel, for, for good news. And Gospel was a word they knew too. They knew the word Christ. They knew this word slave. They were very familiar with these ideas. And now he's using another very familiar idea, gospel. But when they thought of the idea of gospel, what came to mind for them was propaganda. Rome always used the word gospel. Rome brings good news. Caesar brings good news. This is how you announce the birth of an emperor. This is how you announce Rome conquering yet another city or culture, it's gospel. And Paul says, here's the real gospel. Here's the true gospel. You also, you Gentiles, were called to belong to Jesus Christ. You too have been included in all of this. These Gentiles, these, these cogs in the machine of the Roman Empire... These slaves, and Paul says, you belong to a new king. Paul is saying something pretty bold, right? He's saying 
A new king has come, and I am loyal to him. I am his slave. But then, as he's introduced the letter, he begins to step in, not to just what he believes about himself, but what he believes for the corporate church about these people. He has something to say about these Romans who have become a part of the church, right? And what he's saying about the people who are a part of this church would have been radically different from what the culture around them was saying, okay? Completely different. They would never have imagined themselves in this kind of way. Because here's the thing. The very idea that all of these different kinds of people who are becoming a part of the church could gather together, could be related to one another socially, could engage with one another in this way, could call one another family, brother and sister, could worship together. That's not just like strange in the Roman mind. It's offensive. It's inappropriate. It is wrong. It's not supposed to happen. It's offensive at a way, in a way we can't fully understand. And the problem with all of this is that there is this firmly established social hierarchy in Rome. Very hard-line beliefs about classes. And we, we think we kind of understand that because there's still kind of this sort of hidden class system in just about every culture around the world. But this one isn't hidden. This one's sitting on the surface for everybody to see, right? At the top of the hierarchy, obviously, is the emperor, Caesar. Beneath him are all of these powerful people, senators, in positions of power and authority within the empire. But then there's just the general upper classes, you know, the few, right? They're patricians. You've probably heard these terms before at some point in a history class somewhere. Maybe you're vaguely familiar. You have all these patricians. But then beneath them are the plebeians, the lower classes, the huddled, hungry masses, right? The people who are making it all happen, really. But what's interesting is that it's not just a mixing of those classes that's happening in the church. There's this other group who doesn't actually fit into the social hierarchy at all. Slaves into the social hierarchy. They don't find a place in the pyramid. They're given a different category altogether. Slaves have a different category. The Latin word is res. They're things. They're not persona. They're not a person. They're not a human. They are a thing. An object is the kind of idea that this Latin word has. And that's the way people understood them. A slave is like an instrument in the hand of his owner. A slave is like a tool to be used for a very particular purpose, that purpose being whatever his owner or master has in mind. That's it. That's all they are. They're not human. The moment you become a slave, you lose your name, you lose your family. If you're a, a foreign person who was captured in some war or some conflict with Rome, it didn't matter who you were there, right? You lose all of that. If you were a, a part of this culture as a slave, you cease to be who you once were. And you became something else. You were less than human. And they had to see you that way, obviously. They had to dehumanize you so that they could ask the things of you that they are. They are less than human. Their only hope is that if they are obedient enough, they will be able to gain the favor of their owner. They'll attract their owners and maybe they'll gain a higher position. Maybe they'll, they'll gain a higher social position as a result of that. Maybe even in rare cases, they will be free. That is a thing that happens. And many of them look toward that. Many slaves were loyal. They did everything they knew how to, to be obedient and faithful. Trying desperately, hoping that one day maybe they could be human. 
in some sense. They could be seen differently, that they could enter into that social hierarchy. And there's all of these different groups of people mingling together in the church, calling each other brother and sister. It's different. Paul holds a very different view of these people. Paul says something really scandalous. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his people. To all of them. And he knows the demographic of the church. He knows all of these different people who are a part of it. And he's saying this to every one of the people in those churches. You're not just an instrument. You're not just a thing, not just an object in the hand of the empire for its purposes. You're more than this. Paul says, you are beloved. You've been seen this way. Everyone around you sees you this way, but you are beloved of your king. When Paul says he's a slave of Christ Jesus, think about this. He's making this very clear distinction that the king he serves calls them beloved and not res. Not a thing, not an object, not just some miserable beast assigned this terrible lot in life. They are beloved, Paul says. Just as when they became a slave, they ceased to be who they once were and became something new, less than human. Paul says when they came to Christ Jesus, they ceased to be who they once were and they became something new. They became beloved. They are loved. This articulation of love is completely foreign in Rome, right? Think about this. This king makes them fully human and fully loved as slaves, right? Slave owners in Rome don't love slaves. You, don't, you can't love a slave. They use slaves. They manipulate slaves. They abuse slaves. In many cases, it is condoned to rape slaves. Men and women alike have suffered those kinds of abuses. And Paul is saying to people who are that low, you are beloved of your king. There's a different king. There is a truer gospel than the one you have heard. You to a new king, Paul says. There's something beautiful about what he's saying, but it is, it is problematic in Rome. Okay? The word gospel is a loaded term, right? And it's well known to all of these people. They had heard it in a number of different settings, right? Even people who were new believers heard it from Isaiah, right? How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who bring gospel, right? They've heard it. They were anticipating the coming of the kingdom. They knew that Jesus had established the kingdom, and yet they were still waiting on the coming of the kingdom in its fullness. They were waiting on the return of Christ, to establish that kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, right? They're waiting for the fullness of the gospel. And in a world where the violence of Rome is inescapable, where it's oppressive, where it hangs over them at every moment, words like these are comforting, right? They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, And they will train for war no more. 
They knew them. They'd heard these things over and over again. In worship, they had heard them. They had been hearing this. This was their Bible, right? When they wanted to talk about Jesus, they were looking to Isaiah, not Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? This is what they'd been hearing. They were waiting on the king who would bring good news. They had heard it over and over again, right? He brings war to an end. He orders peace by manifesting himself. He surpasses the hopes of all who were looking for good news. These are things they were hearing. They had consumed these things. Those things had shaped them, right? But here's the interesting part, right? We're very familiar with the beautiful feet that bring good news. We're very familiar with the beating of swords into plowshares and training for war no more. This is all beautiful. But that last piece about the one who brings war to an end, the one who surpasses the hope of all of those who are looking for good news, it may sound less familiar to you, and that's because it's not Isaiah. It's, it's Roman propaganda. And it was written on the walls of a city conquered by the empire. And they weren't talking about Jesus. They were talking about Caesar Augustus. It is Caesar who brings an end to war. It is Caesar who establishes peace. Yeah. <laughs> In every place they conquered, someone came along behind the army saying, Look at the good news Caesar brings to you. Ignore the destruction. Here is the good news. Ignore everything you've lost. Here is good news. He is the one who brings peace. This is what they've been hearing. So here's Paul writing a letter to these churches that sit just across town from where Nero lives, the emperor in Rome at the time. Remember, Rome then is not as big as we think of it being now, right? It's a smaller place. They are just across the city. Many of them work in connection with the emperor himself. And Paul is claiming there is a new king, and he is a crucified criminal named Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one who brings good news. He is the one who brings peace, not Caesar. Paul is claiming Jesus is the one who fulfills all these prophecies that have been spoken. Spoken by people like Isaiah, right? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. These are the kinds of things these people are talking about in church, and that's the kind of stuff Paul is claiming when he calls Jesus Christ. And the Romans had heard something similar, right? They've got their own version, right? Now virginal justice and the golden age returns. Now its firstborn is sent down from high heaven with the birth of this boy. The generation of iron will pass away and a generation of gold will inherit the world. A firstborn son is sent down with the birth of this boy. Gold is coming. They had heard this, this kind of stuff over and over again. That's not Isaiah. That's Virgil. That's Rome's great poet saying a son is coming. And when they spoke of the son, they didn't believe it to be Jesus. They believed it to be Caesar Augustus. He is the one who established peace. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome had come through Caesar and not Jesus. So Paul is saying something not just scandalous about Jesus. He's saying something treasonous about Jesus. It's the sort of thing that would easily get you killed, right? And it does. 
Paul says it is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, born in Bethlehem, crucified in Jerusalem. He is the actual king. He's the king above every other king you've known. And he has brought good news. And he will bring peace. And the government will be on his shoulders. Now, those words would go over in Rome about as well as they did in Jerusalem, if you remember. From the moment news of Jesus came to Jerusalem, the earliest part of his life, things weren't great. The Magi show up in Jerusalem. They go to Herod and they say, hey, we're looking for the king. And you can imagine Herod. He's a conceited person, pretty puffed up with pride. And he's like, well, look no further. You have found him. He's probably like handing out autographed trading cards, NFTs, you know, swole Herod, right? Against like a, a sunset background. And it's at that moment that they laugh at him. <laughs> no, sir, pardon us, pardon us. There's been some confusion. We're referring to the baby who has been born king. And Matthew says when Herod hears it, Herod was disturbed. And he disturbed all of Israel as a result, right? And that news would have been just as disturbing in Rome, probably more, because here's the thing. Paul is not just saying this so Herod can hear it. Paul is saying this across town from Caesar himself. Caesar is the man who gave Herod his job. Do you know this? Herod was put in power as king of Galilee by Caesar. And Paul is talking so that the king over that king can hear. And he's saying there's another king. The king of all kings, right? Christ Jesus. Paul is subtly putting Caesar on notice. This is a bad idea. But it's beautiful. Can you imagine this, right? Being told your whole life, look at what Caesar has done for you. Look at what the empire has done for you. Look how great things are for you as a result of, of Rome. How blessed you are because of it all. Imagine hearing your whole life this rosy-sounding propaganda, right? Ignore the destruction. Ignore all of this. Destroying everything in its path. Forget that. Building it back and saying, look how beautiful it is now. Ignore all of that. Ignore what you've heard. Forget all of this. Forget all these years where, where Caesar is claiming that he is Lord. Imagine that. Caesar claiming that he is the king. He's the good king, the long-awaited, anointed one. He is the son who has been given, the one who's going to redeem all of this, right? Imagine hearing that. And Paul says, there's a new king. He's been born in Bethlehem. And his promises are true. He is Lord. This is, this is the problem, right? Paul says, and the early church says, Jesus is Lord. Those words are the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. This is when it starts to crumble. This is when things start to change. That uprooted everything that all these people had heard their entire lives. Paul is saying, you've been a part of this empire for a long time, but you don't want what the empire is offering you. You don't want Pax Romana, this peace that comes at the cost of human lives. You want the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That's what you're longing for. And it has come in this man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. 
And so all of this has me thinking. Obviously, we can talk about slavery and imagine that we understand what it's like historically. But we will never understand it. We will never be able to empathize with these people at any level. It is far worse than you can imagine or that we can talk about or learn about at some level. It was worse. And yet, though we cannot understand slavery, we can understand what it is to belong to something, to feel bound to something, hopelessly, helplessly tied to something. Sometimes it began voluntarily. Other times, it was never that way. But we know what that is, that feeling of, of like belonging to something, right? Of being possessed by something, owned by something. We know that feeling, right? And we know what it is to give ourselves to something. We give ourselves wholeheartedly to some things in our lives. We are loyal to a lot of things. We buy into a whole lot of things. We belong to them. What would you say you belong to? And if somebody were to answer the question for you, if somebody was answering for you what they see, what would someone else see that you have given yourself to? What would they say you belong to? There are all these things we give ourselves to. And I think about it like in our culture, some of these things are just kind of handed to us, right? Like the first 18, 20, 22 years of your life, you study, you train, you grow up, and then somebody says, go to work. And you do it. Maybe for the next like 40, some people like 50 years, or as long as it takes until you feel like you're secure enough to stop. Like we're loyal to our work. We're loyal to this life that we're building. We belong to this idea. The American dream is almost genetic at this point, right? It is in our bloodstream. And we work for it, believing that at some point things will be good enough. At some point we will relax. At some point we will feel better about ourselves. We will feel secure. We will feel at peace, right? Like we believe that. It's not necessarily guaranteed, but we still believe it, right? We're loyal to it. And we slave away at it sometimes. How long have you been loyal to whatever it is? How long have you belonged to something, been possessed by this thing, imagining that at some point you will gain the world's favor? At some point you will hear that thing you have been longing to hear for most of your life. You are enough. Well done. That's impressive. You are successful. And Paul says, there is a new king, and he says you're not just enough. He says you are beloved. Wouldn't you rather belong to him? Would you not rather belong to him? You have a savior, and his name is not Caesar. You have a king, and his name is not Nero. Paul is pressing something upon them. You are so beloved, so intensely loved of God that he's not asked you to come to him. That's how it generally works, right? With kings, you're supposed to come to them. And instead, he has stooped. He has come to you first. He has laid down his life. This is how intensely beloved you are. You may have been lied to your entire life. One empty promise after another. And Paul is saying, this king is not a liar. 
His promises are true. When Jesus makes a promise, he seals that promise with his own blood. When Jesus makes a promise, he seals that promise with his own life. This is not rosy-sounding propaganda. It's a promise fulfilled by the Son of God himself, by Christ Jesus, Paul says. This is different. And so we ask the question, why would Paul lead by calling himself a slave? Right? Why, why would he do this? Why, when we're singing songs about, Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free, Why would we sing these kinds of songs? Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And here's Paul calling himself a slave. It's because Paul knows there is a freedom deeper in belonging to Christ Jesus than in belonging to myself. Freedom as we have imagined it for so long is empty. Paul knows there is a freedom that we find in belonging to to Christ Jesus. Here's the thing. If the king who has come is good, if we actually believe that, then the worst possible thing the king could say to you is, you are free. Do as you will. You are free to your own intentions and purposes and hopes and dreams for yourself and this world and whatever else you have in mind. Because I think the thing we're all haunted by is this. What if your intentions and purposes for yourself are too small? What if your hopes for this world, what if the effect you want to have in the world around you is not as much as God actually wants? What if your vision for this world and for yourself is too small? What if God's is better? Wouldn't you rather, Paul says, than being free, belong to him. So instead of saying, Paul, instead of, of laying out this much more rhetorically appealing message, look, you have been freed, you who were once slaves, you who were once nothing, now you are free in Jesus, he says, you also were called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul knows that freedom is a terrifying thing. Freedom is truly terrifying. Because there's some point where we will all have to be honest with ourselves and acknowledge just how misguided and delusional our intentions for ourselves sometimes are. How delusional our hopes for this world sometimes are. How misguided they are. There is no tyrant more heinous than self. There is no tyranny more oppressive than me. And so Paul says... You're not free in the way you might have thought. And Christ's words to us instead are, you belong to me. You are mine. Christ says you're free from the tyranny of self and of sin and of addiction and death and hopelessness. And you belong to me. And Paul's point is this. This king is no tyrant. Paul is saying something beautiful. You have been freed from that tyrant and you have a new king. Belong to him. Give yourself only to him. He is Christ Jesus. He is Lord. 
And as the band comes and we move toward the table, this is what we're holding on to. The king whose promises are real. The king whose promises are affirmed and fulfilled by his own body broken and his own blood poured out. Paul says, a king has been born in Bethlehem. You belong to him. Give yourself to him. A son has been given, and you must give yourself to him. You belong to him, and not to yourself, and not to any other king. This is the invitation as believers. This is the beauty of the season that we're in. As we begin to turn toward the reality of Bethlehem, the reality of God incarnate, the king has come to us. The king has drawn near, and he's uttering those words. What do you belong to? You're always supposed to be mine. Father, we ask that you would, um, it would stir the deepest kind of joy in us, Yeah, for we have a good king who brings truly good news, who liberates us to a deeper freedom than we might have had for our, ourselves, had in mind for this world. Yeah, it is good to, to be called yours, to be called beloved. And we thank you for this love that is at the heart of this kingdom you have established. And we pray, God, that it would take root in who we are as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.